Hello everyone and welcome on Women Abroad, the podcast that invites young professional women to share their experience abroad and reveal the wonderful women behind these stories. My name is Françoise Fallis. I'm a certified executive intercultural and life coach and trainer. I've lived and worked as an expatriate for more than 12 years in Egypt, Morocco and Nigeria twice, and I currently live in Luxembourg. I meet young women who are studying or starting their careers abroad and hear from them about their discoveries, culture shock and the personal and professional challenges they face. What surprises, amuses, even fascinates them? How does their experience open up new perspectives and reveal new things about themselves? If you are curious about living and working internationally, this podcast will inspire you to consider new horizons. Women abroad, be inspired by women who find their true selves living abroad. Today for this 16th episode, my guest Jessica Pert is offering us a larger perspective of the countries she lived in, exploring the historical, social and economical backgrounds of these countries. Between storytelling and academic debate, Jessica is expressing her alternate voice with sincerity and conviction, and she explains her choices as an immigrant. Hello, Jessica. Pleased to host you on my podcast, Women Abroad, with me, Françoise Fallis. Thank you for accepting my invitation to share your international experience today. I know that you were born in Ireland and lived in India. You currently live in Leipzig, East Germany. Could you tell us a bit about your story? But let's start from the beginning, your home country. What did you study and what is your profession? Okay, well, thank you so much, Francois, for taking the time to do this. And it's really fantastic to meet somebody who's bringing all these voices together. Um, so it's, uh, it's very nice to be part of it. And um, uh, yeah, it helps me digest my experiences as well as I try to settle down eventually. Um, so yeah, um, I yeah was born in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland. And um, my parents sent myself and my twin uh, brother to a German school when we were uh, teenagers. And um, always my family, like I have lots of older brothers and sisters and always they were going to Spain or France or Germany as young teenagers to live with families or work as au pairs or have exchanges. So always um, there was a outward orientation in, in, my, <laughs> in my family off from off the island of Ireland towards uh, mainland Europe and experience those cultures. It was very important for my parents that we do that early and independently. And uh, yeah, so I think that's where um, my sense of being able to live a life where you just keep moving <laughs> yes. or, or that there's huge value in uh, living this kind of alternative life where um, you can always keep growing and developing, maturing, um, even if you're, um, you know, um, moving from place to place. So yeah, it, but there's there's a there's a downside to it as well, of course. Um, it, like it becomes hard to settle. But I'm yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's, I suppose my uh, my experience of um, why I started traveling. But what I studied was English and German in university, and um, Then I studied uh, culture and colonialism as a master's. Uh, as my family also come from a kind of Irish-English background. And uh, growing up in Ireland, you really feel the differences between English and Irish, like through accent um, or lifestyle choices, things like that. So, um, and also like names, like family names, personal names. These are key indicators of Britishness. And um, so I, um, I was always very, very interested in why there's a, tension between English and Irish relationships. And um, of course, the north of Ireland uh, is still experiencing that difficulty of that tension, even after the peace process. And um, yeah, that's why I wanted to study um, colonialism um, in the west of Ireland, actually, in the university there. And I went up to live in Northern Ireland as well, and, um, and then did my PhD on uh, Northern Irish poetry and translation, looking at just um, how the translatorial voice can in some way uh, speak to local problems from an international perspective. 
it must have been really fascinating studies. I, I, I guess it fascinated me so much that it took me 10 years to do it. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I drew it out. I, I, I hated it. I loved it. I wanted to give it up every year. Um, but it didn't stop me from keeping traveling <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and also kind of drowning myself in a, in a, in a, in a, um, in a linguistic environment where I don't understand one word, like such as Malayalam in Kerala in India um, or wherever in Italy or wherever I was. Yeah, that's, I guess, my beginnings teaching English as a foreign language. I I'm just, was just so privileged really to be able to just fall into that profession by the simple fact that I'm a native English speaker. Um, this is a huge privilege um, uh, to have, uh, to be able to just walk into jobs all around the world. And yeah, I, 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 on one hand, I'm very conflicted about that because English is so dominant and I wish it wasn't. But at the same time, it's given me everything that I have, that I have gained over my life. So it helps when you travel, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so working abroad was a natural next step in your personal and professional development, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you you can, you could back then, like around the mid 2000s, work in Ireland um, as an English language teacher, but the pay is not very good. It, it's in terms of quality and to an extent pay. You're better off going to a if you're better off going to a, a non-European country. country. Okay, so the global package was more interesting, most probably. Yeah. Yes, yeah. as an expatriate yeah. at that moment. Sure. And and your first country where you worked abroad as a as a language teacher was was India, wasn't it? Yes, but uh, I did do an assistantship in a grammar school in Austria for a year. Yeah, that was, um, I suppose, the first time straight after university. Uh, but yeah, India was the most formative <laughs> experience, I would say. Yeah. Well, you first experienced some some culture shock, was probably. Yeah, exactly. And how would you explain the culture shock you experienced there? Well, yeah, I well, first of all, um, well, uh, the reason I became interested in India was because I had been working in a call center in Belfast, and the, that call center got bought over by an Indian call center. So they did this work exchange program and I was one of the people picked. So I got to see India for three months, lived there, worked there and became amazed by it. And when I when I had the chance to go to go back to India, um, I, I took it, but uh, I didn't want to work in a call center <laughs> the next time. So um, I managed to find one job in the whole of India on whatever website I looked on, which uh, says, you know, te uh, we're looking for teachers of English as a foreign language. And of course, it like, English is an official language of India, so I was very lucky to get a position. And I mean, it was voluntary, but still, um, it um, it was teaching um, nurses to prepare for an exam called IELTS, this International English Language Testing System, uh, because they would need that to apply to become a uh, a nurse in an English-speaking country. Okay, in New Zealand, or Northern Ireland, wherever. Okay, and then you arrived in India, and then what happened? Where did you land? First, where did you work? Because India is a big country. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so the first time going to work in the call center, I I went with with uh, four others, uh, two guys and two girls from Northern Ireland. So I was the only sort of Southern Irish, and um, we went. It was shortly after September the 11th, so it was it was um, that time when people were all worried about uh, Pakistan. When we got there, um, yeah, like things were a little bare, right? Um, and I didn't mind, actually, because, I don't know, I grew up in a very bare farmhouse in the middle of Ireland. <laughs> I wasn't a city person, you know. And um, uh, the first couple of weeks, um, what I really remember of that is just the architecture, you know, like we were living in a, a high-rise that had probably just been built like two months before, it seemed. And there was all this uh, really unusual scaffolding. To me, it was very unusual. Like, scaffolding for me was like, iron and very in very straight lines and right angles and this scaffolding there was made of I don't know bamboo or something it was all you know twisty and that was amazing uh, you know the, the contours of the place the texture of the place and then you know seeing uh, like uh, seeing uh, uh, women going around in like um, buffalo uh, like carts led by buffaloes um, in these huge wide expanses where more and more tower blocks are being built was it was just this amazing um, mixture between the old world and the new world and um, 
the architecture was, uh, I guess, pretty awful to, to me because it was just so bare. Um, and I felt that was a pity in terms of living environment. Um, I, I guess it was um, total uh, uh, the frontier of uh, sprawling urban development and conurbation, I guess. Eventually it would meet another suburb coming the other way. And I I don't know, I, I don't remember really seeing anybody who lived in, in the apartments. All I saw was the people are working, bringing vegetables or bringing like huge iron rods as part of a construction site so they bring it on their bicycle and I don't know how they don't fall over you know just that kind of that kind of thing just um just seeing how work gets done um I used to work on the night shift so in the mornings when I was free then I would walk, walk around um there and it was, I, I felt very safe it's not many people around just people doing their work and um yeah it was very quiet it was very peaceful but yeah it just felt like a no man's land How did local people react towards you? Often people would wonder why I'm there, you know, and I, I often got this um, expression, okay, you can't see it because I'm just doing it with my hand now, but I often got this expression as in people putting up their hand to me going, why, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I would find it quite funny because they were really interested in what are you doing here? And um, it was very humorous um, and I loved it actually. And, um, and in, in Ireland, like you always say hello to a person that you pass by on the street. Like, if you don't do that, like, the other person could have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I wonder what's wrong with them. We're so, we're so sensitive like that. And, um, uh, and so that that's why, like, I, I think, you know, Ireland is small, very communal, very friendly kind of co country. And, um, and when we go abroad, we always think people are so unfriendly <laughs> 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 because people are just minding their own business. And we always say hello, you know, and, um, So that's what I was doing there as well as I was walking around in the early mornings, and um, and I found it was it was quite easy to do that there. I got a nice um, different uh, ways uh, of greeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought the the people I met on the streets were were into that also, <laughs> which was really nice. And then you taught uh, future nurses, if I understood well. So no, actually they they were nurses already working in hospitals in India, but they wanted to um, try and apply for a visa to work. Uh, outside India. How, how did you build relationship with, with them? Um, well, asking what kind of topics they want to talk about and um, um, then I could build up the vocabulary field there and try to make sure that it overlaps with the IELTS uh, vocabulary fields that are required for the types of questions that come up in the exam. So, um, And also just, just making time uh, towards the end of class to, um, especially if we have a lower number, you know, Uh, for some reason, like loads of people aren't there one day or something, um, just taking the opportunity to to have some free uh, free talk, free free conversation practice. When I say free, I mean like just open, no plan. And and then or or saying I remember one time I, I felt so tired uh, in in the first months because I was um, I think it was the heat and the humidity and Kerala it was very very is a very damp hot humid place. And all on the coast, and um, uh, and also obviously it gets dark at five, right? And for me, that's weird to have heat and darkness. That was like the uh, apocalypse. This was part of the big cultural difference. Well, not cultural, but climate difference yeah, between yeah, yeah. Ireland and like this darkness and heat is very overbearing. I, I I would eat a lot of sugar, and then I would have sugar peaks and troughs and everything. And one of the and of course these were nurses, right? So I remember saying to one of them like, "Oh, I just can't control my energy," and um, so uh, so just opening up like that on a human level helps connect with them. And you know, uh, I remember one particular lady, Bina, was uh, telling me about things that I could eat in the morning to have a, a sustained calm energy throughout the day. <laughs> yes, it's probably taught you that beyond grammar, spelling, vocabulary, there isn't a, a standardized way of teaching a language, a foreign language. Probably it depends on local circumstances. You probably had to adjust your, your, your lessons according to them, according to their needs. To... Yeah, that's right. Because like this... Um, um... The way that we learn to teach English as a foreign language, let's say in Europe, um, is based on the communicative approach. So you're trying to make sure that, that uh, people are, or that, that the students feel the context as if it's real and live, instead of just 
sitting with their hands by their sides and repeating something by rote or, um, you know, uh, doing very boring, predictable fill-in exercises, things like that. So, so then localizing the, the approach, the main thing that you have to do when you're going to a non-European uh, teaching context is, is, is keep in mind that more than likely people have grown up from age four or five in a uh, rote learning culture, educational culture. And that's the way they're comfortable and that's what they like. And also people are, um, you know, the, then there, there can be a, a greater shyness about talking in a foreign language. And it can be embarrassing to uh, talk in front of a group of people, even if they're your peers and your age and you're all in a classroom together, you're all there for the same purpose, you all want to learn, but still there can be a lot of personal inhibitions about talking. and. Um, so you have to tailor this communicative approach, uh, which, as I said, is all about uh, just imagining yourself in a context and just talking, you know, and just, you know, running through the mistakes and um, not caring about them and just getting to the end, getting to your purpose, your goal of communication. Because you could not translate into their own mother tongue and maybe they, all, they did not speak the, all the same, the same uh, language. Well, uh, well, they, they, in India they they did um, like this Malayalam, and um, uh, but uh, but of course I I didn't, so uh, we, we kept it all. I'm sure you learned a lot about local customs with them. Uh, yeah, um, what was interesting about Kerala was that it's a real mix of a Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, and um, and sort of Hindu culture is more about minority, so. Um, I, I had no idea like about that actually. I, I I'm terrible. Like I do no research about where I go to. I just go. <laughs> <laughs> you probably weren't the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so I was quite surprised. I was like, oh, it's Catholic. <laughs> and like, oh, no, no, I can't I can't leave the Catholicism behind. And <laughs> um, so, but but it was really lovely for me to to experience a different type of Catholicism, a different way of celebrating, or um, a different look and feel of Catholicism. Like for instance, um, on celebration days. You know, there would be um, bunting uh, tied around uh, the lampposts in uh, villages, uh, all really bright, different, bright colors and uh, plastic and shiny. Uh, for me, usually I associate bunting like that with, I don't know, concerts or <laughs> it's definitely not Catholicism. Um, Catholicism in Ireland is grey and brown and male. I was living with the, the niece of the owner of the school, uh, a girl called Susan. It's obviously a kind of a Catholic name, right? But she, she's Malayali, and she. Um, so we were, we became very close, and she invited me to her uh, her family uh, for Easter, and so we were going right into the hills, like uh, away from from that those coastal towns where I was teaching. So um, she, yeah, we we went to a, a mass service uh, at super late. Again, this darkness and the heat, walking through these forest areas, these small country roads, paths to get to the church was <laughs> very exotic for me. And just surrounded by all the family, uh, it was really lovely. I felt, I felt like I was swimming. Um, and um, then, like the, the priest was wearing well, bright, bright pink and purple and. These, you know, chains and <laughs> it, was really, it was lovely to to see all this color, and um, and also the way, like, whenever the priest was um, talking or reading from um, uh, their Bible in in Malayali, um, they a lot of the congregation were singing the some hymns back at the same time. So uh, I thought that was nice, like this this um, ritual interaction, um, yeah. But it was very nice, uh, very comfortable. <laughs> and how did going abroad alone mean to you? First, first uh, feeling is, um, and I'm talking about like as as an 18 or 19 year old, that I have a sentence in my head: "You have to discover the world when you're young." <laughs> and that that sentence was implanted in my head for sure. <laughs> um, so I just didn't think if if there was a moment free between you know terms and college I would just I would have my ticket booked way before and off I would go and have some some sort of job uh, sort set up uh, um, I would always make sure to have a job before I go um, I never went anywhere just on spec except when I would come back to Ireland <laughs> um, 
so that's the first thing. I think an inherited sense that you have to, you have to look at this world, you know, and its difference. And the second thing then was more um, that I I didn't feel at home in Ireland, and I didn't feel I had anything, uh, any big interest that would keep me there. Like I, I was very interested in theatre, and um, yeah, at that time, really into into theatre and writing or reading. But there was I didn't get into any community there. The out, outside world, I mean, foreign, was inviting you. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And then you moved to Leipzig at a particular moment. Yeah, um, yeah, right. Uh, so um, I had been living abroad for six years outside Europe. And I I knew like that I, I wanted to to settle down at least try to to settle down have a home and be be in a place where I have citizenship and I don't need to apply for visas anything like that um, where it's a liberal society um, where people are just a bit more like me and uh, a, a place where I presumed at some stage in my life I would want to home towards you know and uh, I didn't want to leave it too late because I I had met many uh, many people. Um, outside Europe who were from wherever like South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, and they could get to age like 60, 65 and um, still be living this very transient life. And I know how easy it could be. And I just thought I don't really want that for myself. I wanted to come to Germany definitely because um, it's the actually the only other language I speak properly. You had been exposed to, to, to German before, as yeah, you said yeah. it before. Ooh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And um, also Germany seems quite a stable country and um, well, that's kind of safe after all those years of talking about it. <laughs> and um, and I, uh, I, I was making plans to move in 2015. And of course, that was a time when the first uh, wave of, of uh, Syrian immigrants um, were trying to cross the, the sea to get into, um, uh, well, uh, to get to the final destination of Germany. And um, I hadn't heard uh, people talking about Germany in this way as a kind of um, like, a, you know, goal uh, country. You know, people often talked about the UK as that or the or America as that, as this dreamland, land of opportunity, everything. And it was so interesting to hear that Germany is that now. And I, I felt I wanted to be in a place. Uh, that's why I chose uh, former Eastern Germany. I wanted to be in a place where um, there is dialogue about what kind of racism or racial feelings and how it expresses itself towards um, asylum seekers. And, you know, if that's open and, you know, we're all having a conversation about it, then, you know, there's a way of maybe going forward or... It seems that tolerance is a very important value for you. Yeah, uh, yeah sure. I mean, I, I myself am a migrant and, you know, and... Um, uh, Even in my own country, I feel like uh, an outsider. But I think that's also a psychological choice. I think I enjoy that because that, that's my only experience. It wasn't comfortable at the start, but actually it's okay, you know. And um, so many people are like that. So so many people are without a place that they call home in terms of a nation. But what, why is it so important to have a nationality? That's another question. Or just we just think it's important to have a nationality, but is it really... Hmm. And uh, what do you think about Leipzig? Why did you choose Leipzig? Well, you explained why East Germany, but what do you like in that Leipzig? Okay, well, um, Leipzig, and uh, by the way, I didn't know this, but uh, Leipzig is a, a liberal island within the former Eastern Germany. So again, I was extremely lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it's... Well, I, I chose it because it's kind of near to Berlin, uh, an hour and a half by train away. And it's also a um, small city and I, I want it small. Um, also, um, it's, it, it just has so many green open spaces right in the city, um, which is just gobsmacking, um, especially coming from, from Ireland and uh, seeing how the development, the property bubble uh, was just just going at a, at a rampant pace you know we call it our Celtic tiger um there's the, the thought of there being any land left as open park uh, or small garden space or allotments uh in the city center in Dublin is a joke you know but mm -hmm. here it's it's possible even though Leipzig is also has also been booming and do you feel as well accepted 
and adjusted in in Leipzig as you had expected? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I'm a bit different in the sense that like a, a lot of people here are homebirds. You know, I think uh, haven't really lived that much outside. Um, and of course, I remember like uh, anybody over the age of 40 um, uh, was born in the in in, in the democratic. Uh, was it, I, I know in, in German we call it the DDR, but I'm not really sure what you say what we say in English. But the former Eastern Germany, that 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 former country. Um, so people above the age of 40 um, uh, have had a very different experience of Europe, and um, yeah, didn't have many formative experiences outside. This uh, f this uh, former uh, Eastern Bloc country, um, and the younger generation though here um, don't just come from Leipzig; they come from all over Germany and came to study because this university here is very is very um, famous uh, for certain subjects. So the population under 40 is really a mix of a lot of different of, of Germans from different places, uh, different states. So it's got a, a, a really nice. Uh, mix a nice flow um, and um, th the only thing is there are not many job opportunities here but um, I think uh, because people can work from home uh, these days I'm, I'm hoping that places like Leipzig or, or anywhere in the in the former east of Germany which are less economically developed have less industries less factories less, less private companies hopefully um, you know that the, the the brains here can be availed of Uh, if people are allowed to stay in their in their village, in their town, in their city here in the former East, and um, and uh, take jobs that are maybe based in Cologne or Bonn, Hamburg, Munich, Stuttgart, Berlin, and and do them. So I think it could be really enriching for Germany um, and for the integration between East and West of Germany, which still is very much in the. Uh, beginning stages there's still a huge difference between east and west yeah. mm. what about your level of german was it was it a way an easier way for you to adjust to be in leipzig because you learn german but uh, they don't speak german the same way everywhere in germany maybe different accents different vocabulary how was it for you how did you experience um well when i before i came i thought i was I thought I was fluent in German <laughs> and I, I would be listening to podcasts uh, and things before I came. Um, but actually I found it so hard to speak and to understand and um, as well, because like, you know, the first interface you have coming here is all bureaucratic and, uh, you know, making sure you register with the police and, you know, like I also bought an apartment and all of that kind of, negotiation and um, uh, discussions and signing contracts and everything with notaries and uh, you know agents and uh, and even just I don't know um, uh, yeah just getting into the system um, that was uh, how, yeah I, I realized how terrible my German was <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I, I, I thought when I when I came I, I thought oh wow I, I can just you know, do everything in German. And then after a few months, I was like watching American news, English, British news. <laughs> I was like, I don't care. I just want to relax. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I thought I was giving up a bit, but um, I have to be very strict with myself not to listen to English language media because it really takes you away. Yes, it takes a lot of effort and energy to immerse completely into a different language, different environment. And You, you, you. In the end, you came to think and even dream in German, maybe. But it takes time. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, and you have to give yourself a break now and again. I think. <laughs> have you now made friends within the uh, with Germans, or are you still more connected to the international community, or both? Well, I, I specifically didn't join the international community on Facebook, which has about 600 members and something, um, because I didn't want to live in an expat community anymore. I really just wanted to live a local life. And um, so, yeah, I did meet some German people, but it didn't really go very well for me. I think it's because of the language. And also, I didn't know where I was, really. I didn't have any conversation topics much that I could find were gelling With with the with the Germans who I met here, um, 
but then uh, I, I started a course on setting up your own business and there were people from Canada, Macedonia, England, and then I kind of jumped into the international yeah, community or yeah. from and from then, there. Yeah, I thought, oh, God, life's too short, you know, this is too much of an uphill struggle. So, and of course, I had loads of things in common with these people because we were in the same situation. And um, it was kind of vital even to learn things from each other. So, yeah, I I was more, I guess, in an international community, but not, not, not a kind of... Uh, staged one, if you know what I mean, like just more, uh, a little bit more organic and uh, and unusual, you know, like everybody very different from each other in that uh, course. But then, and then COVID hit. Mm. And now let's talk a little about the position of of a woman uh, going and and living abroad. And in in your particular case, what what challenges did you face when you had to find your place as as a gay woman in the, the different countries you lived in? You probably saw uh, noticed a lot of differences in the way you could be accepted. I, I think a lot of my difficulties were were my own i don't i don't think like say for instance i i, I was very late coming out so i inhibited myself uh, for a long time and that's that's part of my story um and i i guess like in in ireland growing up in ireland um in the 80s it uh yeah uh, homosexuality was it was criminal uh, in fact until 1993 it was criminal and um uh even the word lesbian is is like a, a joke or a slur You know, so I certainly never wanted uh, to to um, to admit or to go into my feelings um, about um, uh, yeah it, to, to grow up like that. So um, I definitely inhibited myself for a very long time, and I can't say it was Ireland. I mean, I could have uh, if, if I had had maybe a different character or was a bit more outgoing at that time. I'm, I became very outgoing. But if I had been more at that time, I'm sure Ireland would have been a very um, safe place. And But for me, um, uh, um, uh, yeah, Ireland was very conventional. And the, yeah, like uh, lesbians, right? I never met a lesbian, um, you know. And um, so then um, when I was in, let's say, um, India, I didn't want to talk about anything like that because I, I was worried that, you know, If you say the word lesbian, it's again a joke or a slur, or or people think that you are attracted to them, you know, just because you're a female. Yes, so this is very awkward, very embarrassing, and I may uh, imagine. Yeah, so so uh, yeah, I just kept it quiet really, and I just kind of focused all of my so many biases probably or preconceptions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, this is it. But um, at, at the same time, um, I was I was more introverted at that time, and I just tried to put all my energies into studying and writing and um, I didn't discover that part of myself. Um, maybe I could have um, met someone anywhere I was um, and uh, developed a relationship of trust and told them and then they could have helped me to find my place in society, which wasn't as ostracized as it was in my head. You know, so uh, so that's just my my story. Um, and I think there's always a chance for people to find somebody that they can trust to talk to. Um, even in the most like um, hostile societies, especially today. I mean, like today, it shouldn't really be a problem, but in, in a way, um, it can be still, depending on your. It depends on the countries. <laughs> how you feel about yourself and your country exactly, or your your work contexts, the people you work with, and people. And what what did you discover about about love and about expectations of families in India? a bit weird starting with this but it's something that really struck me is that when people have um children that like when the when the children are only like not even one year old then the mother might have to go and work uh, halfway across the world and be separated from her children you know and then uh, the, the the mother or sister or aunts look after the kids and um this this situation brought on by economics just seems so grossly unfair and And just because it's cultural, just because most, a lot of people have to do it, it doesn't mean it's any easier. Um, so learning it was one of the first things that struck me about family life um, in India, uh, how, how people uh, look after each other like that. And, um, and yeah, and how like, you know, the family replaces the social welfare system, which we have in Europe. And um, 
and I felt like it's it's um like in in the west in, in Western Europe and like you know you know in our welfare states, if you're if you don't have a job or whatever or if because of your emotional state or whatever it is, uh, it, it, like a depression or 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 any kind of sickness or physical sickness as well, um, the state all you have to do is write an application on a piece of paper, feed it into a machine, and this random stranger will hand you out money. And that's the way we work, you know. And I, I never thought about that until I was in India, where, like, you, you don't just hold your hand out like a robot and receive something from mother state, you know. So, like, so these kind of situations where you're, um, it, like, experiencing difficulties, uh, either personal or whatever, or you need somebody to, to care for your children, um, like, the way of um, dealing with problems just seems so much more humane and 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 you have to really go through the emotional aspect of your of your situation to talk to people and ask them for help and then be in a position to return the help which is so different from our system of just you know here my hand is out give me the money um and then not ever giving back to the state you know or to whatever system okay and how did you have to adjust to local customs as a as a woman as a foreign woman? Um, well, at the start, uh, well, the first thing that I had to do was I, I'm, my, my flatmate, Susan, talk, uh, took me clothes shopping. And um, so I was suddenly wearing dresses and, you know, the pyjama. And uh, that was so funny. And I, I thought, for me, before I got my own tailored and made, which was very special, I'd never... Of course, had, you had to customize your, well, to adjust to, to the clothes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was pretty special. But um, I, before, when I'd just seen these clothes on others, for me, it was just different colors, but all exact same form. But then, like, when I was in the, the cloth shop choosing mine and seeing all the different uh, ways you can cut the neck and looking at the different embroideries, I was just amazed at how uh, various uh, these clothes are so that was interesting for me to realize about my my uh, perception that uh, I was seeing everybody in a very homogenous way and um, and I yeah I loved I loved uh, wearing those clothes actually and uh, it was just interesting as well to think that the reason people dress like this is because of the climate you know I mean it's like you know I, um, and so, so much about how we develop is, is through uh, through the climate it's, it's not just an invention in our heads yeah, true. How would you compare the role women played in, in India, at least what you noticed, with with the roles you saw in Ireland? Okay, like, you know that, like, obviously India got dependent in 1947, but uh, Kerala uh, is the first, I think, only country in the whole world, or, or, or state in the whole world, to voluntarily choose a uh, communist regime which they did in 1952 um, now I don't know what kind of communism this is because they can vote them out <laughs> and get congress in and then they and then they vote the communists back in and they seem to do this dance every five years still um, well well like when I was there and uh, it was still happening and um, so with, but with the communist strain running through that society um, it meant that women could have uh, a, a, an education equal to that of men and there, there was, and as I said, like there's a lot of Catholicism and Protestantism there, less Hinduism, less of this caste system. Um, so it's for me, it was probably one of the most liberal places in India. Although I can't really say that because I haven't lived in all the other states, right? Um, so uh, yeah. So uh, also, I knew that um, you know the, the, these nurses I was teaching, a lot of them went to work in the Gulf uh, to earn money and sent home and different places so the so nursing uh, and nursing was traditionally done by women you know uh, in um so there was like they a woman would be would be a massive source of income to her family um by let's say going to work for 20 30 40 years uh in in a in an english-speaking country and getting one a, let's say western wage so um, I don't know if that made the woman in a way more powerful or to ha or for her to have a higher status. I don't really know that, but I imagine it would have. But at least with a status. 
for sure yeah yeah that's she's a provider so so in um, yeah and so so when you think of like um india gaining independence and and then uh these states having the choice to uh decide what kind of government they want and forming their own um uh so 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 they were shaping their own uh, state from, from the early 50s and ireland um had become independent from britain in uh, 1922 um so or like 30 years exactly before let's say kerala's communist uh, foray and ireland was like totally broke at that time right i mean coming out of like hundreds of years of colonialism um so it had to learn how to manage itself and uh in the 19 in the 1940s 1947 there was a, an education act passed which meant that uh, everybody could should has to go to school for, until the age of 14 so we in ireland we started in the republic of ireland we started building up a um an educational capital um uh, while we were still very poor still teens and teens of people emigrating to america australia argentina and um, we, but but over those decades, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we were, once we started to have our boom, our Celtic Tiger, we were in a position to take up the jobs. We knew how to do it. We didn't need to get expats in to pay them huge money so they can do the job and try and train in an Irish person. We were ready. And I feel that in, in India as well, like, um, they slowly built up uh, over a few decades with education and they were ready. And so I would say, like, would you ask, like, to, uh, to go back to your basic question about the comparing the role of women in Ireland and, um, and Kerala, just to take that um, historical angle, um, I would say it's quite, quite similar. And we were both cultures who were very fortunate to have had time to get educated so that we could do the jobs ourselves. And you think over the decades, both countries, really, uh, women really benefited this this development. Yeah. I, I think so, due to the, the communistic strain there in, in Kerala. Yes, though political systems were quite different in both countries. Yeah. Yes. And, and, yeah, and, and w w women in, in Ireland are typically very strong. <laughs> a bit of a matriarchy, matriarchal culture. <laughs> <laughs> this is the trade of women in Ireland, that's what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do you think you would have had that kind of uh, insightful reflections and that kind of perspective if you had not travelled the way you have? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think my learning style is... To, is um, energetic I, i don't know if that is even a learning style but i can learn when i'm right there i'm immersed i really need to be immersed i find it hard to concentrate when reading which is why i probably also took 10 years to do a phd <laughs> um, but i i think yeah that's my learning style and i don't think it's everybody's by any means um, and of course it's a luxury just to drop everything and go to any country a lot of people can't do that right so um for, for me it It was it was necessary, yeah. But there are uh, tens and tens of ways of getting the same value out of an experience. Mm, sure. And how have all your international experience have shaped your identity as a person so far? Um, I think uh, that I um, I hope that I um, observe better, uh, listen better. Um, And um, and appreciate why a culture has become the way it's come without judging too quickly. Um, and I think it's given me a good sense of humor as well, um, because the you know we hold on to things as if they're the truth, and you know they're not. And this is funny, not in a ridiculing way, but it's just funny how superficial so many things are. Really, at the end of the day. Uh, so I have a, a I think my sense of humor has um, developed a bit <laughs> just by seeing how uh, yeah uh, how 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 we patch up the world and um, um, and it's just I think just given me an appreciation of how people who do stay in one place how um, how they um, um, how they find how how they find ways of developing themselves just purely through human relationships 
And this is very, very beautiful for me. And this is something that I hope for my future that I can keep enriching my my life journey just purely through um, around settled human relationships, being there for people, being part of the community. And um, and yeah, I think that's um, it's yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely taught me or shape my identity in a way that uh, I know there's always more to learn and it's really can be very difficult <laughs> but it's always worth it in the end and everything's messy and <laughs> I think uh, with with the experience the more you travel at one moment even though you settle in one particular country it seems that you're becoming like an hybrid person I mean multicultural is is in you <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and and at the same time, you when when you are living in a more local place and that you want to call home and stay, like you, um, you have to stay very present and focused on the things that that the locality cares about. You know, true, true. Um, But they have evolved too, and you have yeah. missed that sometimes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's. It, it's There's ways of showing your hybridity, I think, or ways of um, expressing your hybridity. Because um, obviously, if you're hybrid, you're a bit different, right? Yeah, sure. Um, but um, sometimes it's important to tone down your difference, right? <laughs> Just fit <laughs> yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, true. But in some, some way, uh, yeah, I think by probably being hybrid is um, it's it's a more it's a more internal thing and just have to just uh, yeah try and always see things from the local angle, see why people get so uh, why people prioritize things the way they do because they, they don't have that external angle or external or perspective way of looking at things and did living abroad change your opinion about um gay rights yeah i think uh yeah like because when i was growing up in ireland let's say uh, there was a kind of um, militancy around um homosexuality and uh, and lesbianism or whatever um And that that had a, had a kind of a bad name, this militancy. Um, and then, like let's say, being in, in India or or knowing about like uh, um, this culture of lady boys and um, um, and yeah, hearing like about people being killed and beaten and everything, mainly men for being gay. Um, that Um, it, it, I felt I felt um, like I had been quite cowardly, really, by not standing up for um, for the whole issue uh, throughout my life, um, because it is so important to be militant, actually, about um, about uh, yeah, creating a space for what what people call alternative. Because like it's not alternative to you if it's you, right? Of course, of course. It it, it comes to questioning what's normal. <laughs> yeah, this is it. But it seems perfectly fine to say, "Oh, you're alternative." I mean, this is still quite shocking. I think. So, um, I, like, yeah, um, I think growing up, I wanted to totally shy away from this uh, militancy, and then when I saw it in in uh, in Asia. I thought, wow, if, if they didn't exist, if they weren't fighting for, for others, what would happen, you know? And it's amazing what can happen. And, uh, well, we are slowly nearing the end. The end of our interview time is flying by. And what advice, this is a recurring question I like to ask to all women I interview, what advice would you like to give to early career women who are considering to work abroad And who are in the same position as you were? I mean, the same same way, language teacher or translator. What would what advice would you like to tell them? Um, well, regarding language teaching, um, I think unfortunately so much of it is going online. Um, so I, I say unfortunately because because I, I guess there are less opportunities um, to. to be needed in person as a language teacher somewhere. Um, but I would say um, that, yeah, if you if you really want to um, work with people, that you could definitely find something, maybe not very in a big city, but just somewhere 
somewhere quiet or maybe just totally voluntary or uh, with people who you know don't have, have the money to pay for these schools um, or people without an internet connection. Um, so I guess it can become more of a, of a charitable type of type of work unless you want to you know set up your office in your home and do it and, and do lessons with people from everywhere. But uh, let's say the advice I, I would give is, um, yeah, definitely, definitely go for it. <laughs> um, but um, I guess these days it might be harder to find a way of learning about the local uh, culture if, if more um, contexts are online. I can't imagine what it would be like starting doing this all over again today. And for our other early Kerry women who um, were ready to take on a mission abroad, what would you tell them? Apart from being teachers, there are many other positions <laughs> that they could have abroad, of course. <laughs> I'm not sure if I would see a difference between um, uh, women's experience and men's experience that much. In a, um, I don't know why I say that now, but um, I guess I think there are just more contexts available where women can just feel free to do whatever they want to do. Um, like, uh, um, when I was in India, I thought, you know, if I would go, to, if I wanted to go to the bar and have uh, whatever they served, which was rum or warm beer or something, um, I really stuck out, you know, and it was kind of uncomfortable. This is all, all men and, you know, all the farmers and, uh, oh, I didn't feel like very elegant in, in a bar, you know, sipping rum. Um, And but that was that was like 20 years ago. So now I just think there's everything everywhere. And, that, and that's due to globalization, right? You have a Starbucks everywhere, Costa everywhere, these theme bars. Um, I think you and so many more people, number one on the planet and so many more um, people just, just traveling. You, you can really very easily find a context um, to make friends um, Uh, share all your experiences, you know, share, um, compare notes. I think it's really very easy these days. Um, well, obviously, just with COVID, you need to be really careful which country you're going to, where the, where the healthcare is good. Um, and if you don't mind being locked up there for a winter. Well, thank you very much for sharing your experience. What appeared to me is, is a deep sense of justice and tolerance and that accompanied you along along your experiences abroad. Uh, well, um, I thought it was really fascinating, and I thank you for spending this time with me. And, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy a beautiful day. Okay, thank you very much, Francois. Thank you. Thank you for following us in this episode. Because an international experience can awaken incentives, and reveal new aspects in women's identities. Women Abroad is the podcast that appeals to young women everywhere. Did you like this episode? Like it and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts and share it with your friends. You can also rate us and review us. Would you like to share your experience abroad? Whether you are a student, an early career woman or a more experienced professional, Contact me on my page women underscore abroad underscore on Instagram and women abroad on Facebook. You can also listen to the episodes on my website women-abroad-coaching.com. I wish you a great day and a bright life. Talk to you soon. <laughs>